0: We're back in Habakkuk uh, this morning. Uh, we began uh, our look at Habakkuk last week, and I, I said last week that you know this is a, a a short prophecy buried in the back of the new of the Old Testament, I should say. Sometimes it's hard to find. Uh, it's a short prophecy, a small prophecy that carries a very big punch. Um, Habakkuk was facing very tough times, we're facing tough times right now, he was facing incredibly tough times in his day, and he cried out to God, and he argued with God, and he pleaded with God, and he demanded from God an answer uh, to, the, to his questions about the very hardships that he was facing, and I said last week that, that there are a number of lessons that we can learn from the book of Habakkuk, but I also said that some of those lessons would be very hard to learn, they were tough lessons, and they would, what I meant by that was that they would be hard to accept. They would be hard to receive. They would be hard to submit to. They would be hard to listen to. Well, um, we hit our first tough lesson right off the bat. We hit it this morning because in uh, the passage that we read this morning, God confronts a core belief that we have about life. We're modern people. And so we live with modern assumptions. And what I mean by that is is that we have certain things that we believe deep in the core of our being that are not necessarily expressed. They're not necessarily thought out cognitively, but they're in there. They're part of us. The way I like to describe it is this. Um, You know how a computer has applications Uh, you know, programs that you run, and those are the things that you use to actually use your computer. But then in the background behind uh, all those applications is the operating system. The operating system runs in the background, and it's the thing that makes the applications that you use when you're using a computer actually work. Well, our operating system as modern human beings includes this assumption. We believe that life is fundamentally, basically about us. It's about us having plans and ambitions and goals and dreams and desires. And the purpose of life is about us achieving those plans and goals and dreams and desires. Now, that sounds kind of selfish, right? And maybe you're listening to this and saying, wait a minute, yeah. That does sound selfish, and that's not me. In fact, uh, I would like to say that, that I am not only thinking about me when I think about life and what life is all about. I'm thinking about my family. Right now, I'm thinking about my community. I'm thinking about uh, society in general, and in fact, I'm thinking about the whole world and what's going on in it. I'm not self-absorbed, but that's not what I mean. Remember, I said that we live with, with, if we're going to use this computer analogy a little longer, we live with these kinds of assumptions, and then we have these applications. And you're thinking when you think, well, I'm not all that self-centered, you're thinking at the application level. You're a person who cares. You're, you care about all these things. And that's, that's wonderful, and that's great. What I'm saying is that on the operating system level, We think that life is about ourselves. So take, for example, this pandemic that we're facing and that we're in right now. You're thinking about how does it affect us? And by us, you might mean you and your family. You might mean your church community. You might mean your town. You might mean the country of Canada. You might even mean the entire human race. But it's still about us. It's still about human beings. And it's it's that assumption that God confronts in this text, in his his answer to Habakkuk. When Habakkuk comes to him and says, why, why is this happening? And how long do I have to call for help? And all this kind of stuff. In his answer, God actually confronts that assumption head on. He, He faces it head on. And he says, you know what? Life is not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about me. God says that life is ultimately about him. All of history is about him. It's, this is what I was, learn, what I was taught in, in elementary school, and it stuck with me. History is his story. All of reality, all that's happening in the world, from the beginning of the world till the end of the world, is, is God's theater, in which he is expressing his majestic glory. And so you and I, we are part of that story. We are part of a much bigger story than just ourselves or just our families or just our culture or even just the human race. We are part of a story that is about God bringing glory to himself and spreading that glory throughout the globe, And we're called to play a part in that. You know, Habakkuk actually explains the purpose of the story in Habakkuk 2, verse 14, where he says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the purpose of it all. Now, if you're not a believer, and frankly, even if you are, so if you're not a Christian, and even if you are a Christian, that may sound somewhat narcissistic. Here I am telling you, it's not about you, but it is all about God. Well, is God a narcissist? Is God an egomaniac? And let me just tell you, it's not narcissistic. In fact, it's, it's everything that you really want. What we're gonna do, is we're gonna look at this answer that God gives Habakkuk in our, our passage today. And we're gonna look at the content of his answer. We're going to look at the challenge of his answer. We're gonna look at the reason for his answer and Habakkuk's response to his answer. And hopefully what I've the thesis that I've laid before you will become more clear as we go along. So let's look at it together. First of all, the content of God's answer. So Habakkuk sees the world all around him falling apart. There is societal degradation everywhere he looks. The entire civilization is collapsing. And he cries out. He says, God, why all this violence? And why all this injustice? And God's answer is, I'm going to bring more. I'm going to bring more violence. I'm going to bring more injustice. You think it's bad now? Wait till you see what's coming. (laughs) I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, he says. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Verse six, I am raising up the Babylonians. Now, he goes on, God goes on. In verses six through 11, to basically describe what the Babylonians are like, I'll just give you two examples to help you uh, picture what they're like. The Babylonians were such a ruthless nation that whenever they conquered another nation and they captured the leadership of that nation, usually the king and their family, what they would do is, is they would force the king to watch them slaughter their entire family before they gouged out their eyes and carried them off to captivity. Also that the last thing that king saw was the death of their family. And when they did carry people off to captivity, the way they did it was was they took a hook, and they put a hook in, the, in every person's mouth, piercing their cheek, and then tied it to a rope or a chain or something, and pulled them along that way as they brought them back into Babylon. These were bad people. They were ruthless, they were lawless, they were heartless, they were callous, they were cruel, they were brutal, they were savage, they were vicious. And notice that God said, I am raising them up. I am raising them up. Look, this is not a fluke. This is not a coincidence. This is not just bad timing uh, in world history. No, no, no. God is saying, I'm doing this. In other words, God says, I am sovereign, okay? I am almighty. I am God over all nations. I'm not just the God of Israel. I am the God of every nation. I include. I am the God of, of even the rebellious nations that won't acknowledge my lordship because I am the sovereign, almighty God who reigns over the entire universe. And therefore, this This raising up of the Babylonians, them coming in and sweeping through Judah and crushing and capturing you, this is planned. This is planned. That's the content of the answer. But there's a challenge within that content. See, God says to Habakkuk, you won't won't understand, it's it's a little bit comical. In verse 5, it says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. God says, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. You're not going to get it. And and then God tells Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk says, I don't get it. And God says, see, I told you so. Here, here's the challenge. It was Habakkuk's challenge, and it's your challenge and my challenge right here, right now. Are you ready for the God of Habakkuk? Are you ready for this God? Are you ready to deal with? Are you ready to contend with? Are you ready to submit to This God, this is not the God of your best life now. This is not the God of the prosperity gospel. This is not the God who tells you to name it and claim it. This is a God who says to us, he says, I bring prosperity and I bring abundance and I bring success, but I also bring hardship and distress and suffering. That's the God of Habakkuk. That, in fact, is the God of the whole Bible. That's the God of Abraham and of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of David, the God of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. The examples in Scripture are endless of people encountering this God, a God who says, Yes, I bring good times but I also do bring bad times. This is the God of Habakkuk. This is the God of Job, who said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you okay with that? Are you are you ready for that God? In other words, let me put it a different way. Are you okay with a God that you don't understand? That's the challenge. I don't mean that God is arbitrary, that he is capricious, that he is erratic, that he is not trustworthy. That's, that's not it at all. In fact, we're gonna see that that's not it at all. What I mean is, are you prepared to 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 engage with a God who is mysterious, who is inscrutable, a God that you don't get, a God that doesn't line up for you, a God that doesn't make sense to you sometimes. You see, listen, I said at the very beginning, we're modern people. Well, when did the modernism start? Well, it kind of got its roots in the Enlightenment. And ever since the Enlightenment, Ever since the Enlightenment, we human beings, we have come to trust and have a tremendous amount of confidence in our own ability to reason, to understand, and to figure things out. And so we have come to the place where we say, look, if something does not make sense to me, well, then it cannot make sense at all. If it doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't make sense at all. And therefore, I don't believe it. I refuse to believe it. I won't believe in it. I won't believe in God. I'm out of here. Frankly, that's, that's kind of a stupid way to operate, with all due respect. Um, imagine, look, when you have young children you're constantly telling them no about things you're constantly saying no you may not or you can't have that or they have something and you take it away from them Uh, i i don't know why but uh, my wife and i we were blessed with four kids all of whom when they were young especially and maybe unfortunately today too were were kind of uh thrill seekers risk takers Uh, they were they were foolish that way one of them was a little more level-headed than the others um, but all of them had this kind of thrill-seeking streak in them. And they would try, as, as young kids, they would try the most bizarre, dangerous things. And my wife and I, we were constantly intervening to stop them from killing themselves and saying no. And if every time you do that, when you do that with a little kid, what do they do? They rail against you and they whine about it and they complain. And sometimes they even, if they're really young... Maybe even if they're a little bit bigger, they just like they have these complete meltdowns and, and these tantrums on the, on the on the floor you can't reason with them you see you can't reason with them, but that doesn't mean you don't have a reason for the restrictions that you're putting around them. that doesn't mean that there is no good reason just because they won't accept your reason and God has a reason for what he's doing in Habakkuk's day and he has a reason for what he's doing in our day too. Habakkuk cannot see it. But what God is showing him is, Habakkuk, it's not about you and your own life in the here and now, in the present moment. It's about how the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth the way the waters cover the sea. It's about 2.14. My plan to redeem the world. That is the most important thing here. Now, how do I know that that's that's what it was all about? Well, Habakkuk alludes to it, but the Bible tells us so in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, uh, the apostle Paul is in the city of Pisidian Antioch, and he goes to a synagogue there and he preaches a sermon. And in that sermon, because he's in a synagogue, he retells the history of Israel. And he explains to them that the whole history of Israel happened the way it did for the purpose of bringing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world so that he could live the perfect life that we could not live and die that substitutionary death on the cross that we deserve to die for our sins. It's all part of God's plan to send Jesus. And then listen to what Paul says. This is beginning in verse 38 of Acts chapter 13. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am doing to I I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. He quotes Habakkuk. Paul quotes Habakkuk. See, There's a principle that Paul is referring to in describing the coming of Jesus that he pulls from Habakkuk. And it's this, the ultimate purpose of God's plan is to glorify himself through the salvation of sinners like you and me, through the redemption of the world, even when it doesn't look like it. That's the principle. That's what it's all about. Look, Just look at the cross. Envision the cross in your mind's eye because it is the most grandest, clearest, vivid expression of this principle that that has ever occurred on the face of the earth and in the history of the world. Around that cross, there were many people that had followed Jesus for many years, some of them for all three of his ministry years, some of them perhaps for not as long, but what did they witness? They saw his, they heard his incredible teaching with authority, his profound wisdom. They witnessed his astounding miracles. They were there to to see his his incredible courage as he stood up to the powers that be, both the religious authorities and the, the, the Roman secular authorities. And, you know, they were there on Palm Sunday when he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people were crying out, Hallelujah, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were seeing their king ride into the city in triumph. Those were heady times. Those were good times. And then came Good Friday. And in a heartbeat, well, that was a finger snap. In a heartbeat, their leader, their master, their king was dying like a common criminal. Terrible injustice and violence was being meted out and poured out on their Lord and And what did they think as they witnessed this? What good could possibly come from this? Their dream of a restored Israel back to the glory days of David and maybe even greater, it was over in a moment, in a flash, gone. But it's not about them. It wasn't about them and their hopes and their dreams and their desires. It was about God. You know, when I was in seminary, I remember one of my professors walking through the history of Israel and explaining as he walked through the history of Israel, how God used these historical events to accomplish his plan. And, and when he got to Habakkuk and, and the exile and then uh, the, all the way up to the New Testament, that period of time, he said something incredible. He said, you know, if, if the Jews were not captured by the Babylonians and taken off into exile, as was prophesied here in the book of Habakkuk, if that didn't happen, the gospel may not have spread at all. Because that captivity led to what's called the diaspora, which was was Jews being scattered all throughout the known world at the time. And wherever they went, what did they do? They established synagogues. And of course, then after the Babylonians, the Greeks came along and they captured or they uh, conquered the Babylonians, and now they ruled over everything. And what did they do? They they began the first. Events of globalization, I guess, because they introduced a common language, Koine Greek, that was spoken throughout their empire. And then after them, the Romans came. And the Romans established what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which made the entire empire far more safe a place to be than it had ever been the, the, ever been before. And they established a, a very sophisticated road system for travel so that they made travel much, much easier to get around. And all of those things were done through violence, through nation-conquering nation, terrible violence. Yes. But then. Then the apostles came, preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ. And they could do it relatively safely as they traveled from city to city. And where did they go? Well, they went to synagogues, first and foremost. And they got a hearing from from Jews, but particularly from God fearers. These were pagan Greeks who had come to know the God of the Old Testament through the Jews, who were ripe for this message of salvation by grace through faith alone. It's incredible. And as as Christianity spread, the very violence that Habakkuk complained about diminished all over the world. Because you see, prior to that, things like human sacrifice and infanticide and violence against women and slavery and the Colosseum, this was normal behavior in these ancient civilizations until Christianity came on the scene. Now, Habakkuk could never have known that. He could never have seen that. can't know and we can't see how God is using our current crisis to advance the cause of his glory extending to the ends of the earth either but that doesn't mean it's not happening last thing what do we do what do we do we can't know it so what do we do well there's a couple things we can do and in chapter 2 verse 1 it says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. The first thing Habakkuk does is, is he waits, okay? And what I mean by that is, is he doesn't leave. He doesn't leave his post. He stations himself on the ramparts. It's like a watchman on on, on uh on the wall of the city, and he's looking for signs of the weather changing or enemy attacks or whatever. He's, he's on the lookout, but he has to be there. He can't abandon his post. And Habakkuk doesn't do it. He doesn't say, forget it. I don't understand this. I'm out of here. I'm gone. No. He stands at the watch. He doesn't bail. And the second thing he does is, is he actively seeks. It says, I will look to see what he will say to me. I will look to see what he will say to me. This is an opportunity, friends, for you and I, if we would trust God and believe God's promises. This is an opportunity, even in this crisis, as you maybe have more time on your hands to see what God is saying to you. He's saying something to our whole culture. I said it last week. Through a little bug, God has brought the entire world to its knees, and we are still looking for all our answers in the power of science and in the power of physical distancing and the power of economic stimulation. We are still looking for our answers in the power of humankind, and God is giving us the opportunity to look up with our eyes and seek him and find our salvation in him. And I'm not just talking about, oh God, if I pray really hard, a vaccine will miraculously appear. I'm not that naive and simplistic. But rather, as God opens our eyes to see how we have put our trust in human things and how, how you and I have idols in our lives, whether it be our family or our business or our health or our church or whatever, we have an opportunity to hear truth from him. Because he will answer. You see, Habakkuk starts with how long? And here he says, I will look to see what he will say to me. The answer may be a long time coming, but it's coming. Um, You know, I love Lord of the Rings and... uh, one wonderful passage in Lord of the Rings, it's in the first book, in the Fellowship of the Ring. The, the group has found themselves in the mines of Moria. So they've had to go into a mountain and into these mines to, uh, as part of their journey, and they get lost, and they do not know where they are, and they're not sure how they're going to get out of there, and there's a lot of anxiety, uh, and they're not sure what to do. And at one point, Frodo is sitting with Gandalf, and, and Frodo says to Gandalf, He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. I wish it need not have happened in my time. And what he was talking about was Bilbo finding the ring and stealing it from Gollum and then giving it to him. And now they're on this journey to to try to destroy the ring in, uh, in, uh, in Mount Doom. And he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And maybe you're feeling that way. I've felt that before. i felt that about this. Like, I wish this crisis didn't happen in my time. And Gandalf says something really wise. He says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. Now, that's not a resignation to fate. Rather, it's a resolution to play the part in the story. Our part, which is to give praise to God even in the midst of crisis. The story of God extending his glory to the ends of the earth. And you know what? I said at the beginning, deep down, we want this. Let me close with this. It's, it's, it's a bit of an add-on, I guess, but it's important. For us to see God's glory, to see God's glory fill the earth, it is the very thing our hearts most desperately want. Because you see, for us to see God's glory means for us to see God for who he really is. Ask yourself this question, what's the most loving thing anyone could give me? Wouldn't it be the very best thing that you could enjoy forever? The very best thing that you could enjoy forever. Well, what's the most loving thing that God could ever give you? best thing that I could enjoy forever. Well, friends, you know what that is? That's himself. That's himself. He is the best thing that we could enjoy forever. And that's what his plan to glorify himself is all about, for us to be caught up in the glory of God, his superfluous no not superfluous that's the wrong word superlative beauty and love and grace we're to magnify that and and not magnify that like a microscope but to magnify that like a telescope you know a a microscope what it does it makes small things bigger But what a telescope does is is it brings great things nearer. You look at the stars in the sky in the the middle of the night and you say, wow, they're awfully beautiful, but like they're little pinpricks in the sky. And they engender a certain amount of awe and wonder. But if you look at the stars through the Hubble telescope, you see the sheer majesty of them and you are lost in the beauty of it. God's plan. You want to find full fulfillment and satisfaction, that's where you'll find it. That's where you'll find it. So let's get out of ourselves. Let's get out of our own little story and see our place in God's grand story. And let's remember the cross and the empty tomb that proves that he is absolutely accomplishing that plan. That is guaranteed. So may we not lose faith and lose hope in the midst of a crisis like this pandemic. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks be to you. Thank you that even when we face bad times like we do right now, they are not uh, incidental times. They They are times in which you are at work accomplishing your purposes in this world. And we can find confidence and hope in that. Oh Lord, may we be excited about playing our part in your story, even if our part means that we will face trials and tribulations and suffering. We do not rejoice for them, but we will rejoice in them because you are bringing us into your glory. And that is the most beautiful thing of all. In Jesus' name, amen.